You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. We are not crooks. And Richard Nixon said he wasn't either after the Watergate <laughs> scandal that you're about to hear about right now. And because we're not crooks, we're asking you for your money instead of just taking it out of your pockets. Yeah, so it's totally legit to head over to electioncollege.com slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or you can go patreon.com slash electioncollege. That'll take you there as well. And you can help support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. Yeah, we would really appreciate it. And it helps out our community a ton when you participate and engage with us. So head on over and see what it's all about. Election College, episode 105. In this episode, we're going to talk about the Watergate scandal, Richard Nixon, and his almost impeachment. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for election college, and class is in session. Now, your hosts... Jason Goff and Ben Smith. Hey, Jason. Last episode, we talked about impeachments and the way those go down, what they mean, what they don't mean. But a couple times through the episode, we mentioned Richard Nixon. And, well, Richard Nixon didn't get impeached, but he got close. So why don't we go ahead and talk about Watergate? And uh, all the stuff that went along with the near impeachment of Richard Nixon. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know what Watergate is or was, it was a huge political scandal here in the United States back in the early 70s. And what happened was there was a break in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate office complex in Washington, D.C., yeah. And basically, President Nixon's administration, so, you know, his cabinet and all the people who fall in line under them, try to cover up their involvement in it. And essentially, there's a conspiracy that's discovered and Congress begins investigating. And Nixon decides, well, I, I don't really want to cooperate. So then you have a whole crisis on your hands on what's, uh, what's legal under the Constitution and what's not. Yeah. So when we're talking about Watergate, it's actually a, an umbrella term for <laughs> a bunch of things that were going on, a bunch of secret things. And well, let's just flat out say it. People were convicted and thrown into prison, which we'll get into a little bit later. There were a lot of illegal activities going on by members of the Nixon administration. And these activities included such dirty tricks as bugging the offices of the Democratic National Committee and other people who Nixon was just kind of suspicious of. Yeah, it kind of makes Nixon out to be a little bit of, um, oh, I don't know, kind of paranoid, I guess you could say. Uh, I've heard multiple different angles on that as well, but 
uh, sometimes it's okay to be suspicious of people, but it's not okay to break the law uh, in in uh, finding out what they're up to. Yeah. But at any rate, Nixon and um, some others kind of hassled some people and they uh, they enlisted the FBI and the CIA and the, even the IRS because actually the IRS has got a lot more power than we remember. Right. <laughs> so it all begins with the arrest of five men who broke and entered into the DNC headquarters at the Watergate complex way back on Saturday, June the 17th, 1972. And let's just call it like it is. G. Gordon Liddy, he was the general counsel for the committee to reelect the president, which the official name was Committee for the Reelection of the President, We'll just call it creep. <laughs> Liddy presents a campaign intelligence plan to the creeps acting chairman, Jeb Stewart Magruder and the attorney general, John Mitchell and presidential counsel, John Dean said there were some illegal activities going on at the democratic party. And according to Dean, this is the opening scene for the worst political scandal of the 20th century. Yeah. So basically uh, a couple months passes and well, there's a plan that was in place and now it's reduced. And, and part of that is why don't we go ahead and burgle the, the DNC headquarters at, which is at Watergate. It, that seems like a really obvious and legitimate thing to do. But, you know, what they're planning to do is go in and maybe get some campaign documents and maybe install some listening devices. But the long and short of it is we don't 100% know everything that they were going in to do. We certainly know that those were things that were done. And also there were some ideas behind where there foreign influences and funding and all that kind of stuff. But what we do know is that they sent people to break into the headquarters and that was not okay. Yeah. And so keep in mind that everybody who is involved in this is not necessarily, well, there's very little unity. We'll put it that way. People don't like each other, but hey, who likes each other in Washington anyway? So we'll save that for another time. <laughs> what does what does happen is that two phones inside the DNC offices were said to have been wiretapped. And one of the phones was of Robert Spencer Oliver, and he was the executive director of the Association of State Democratic Chairmen. And the other one was of the DNC secretary, Larry O'Brien. Now, the FBI never found any evidence that stated that O'Brien's phone was bugged, but it was determined that Oliver's phone had something in it. I'd really like to know, Jason, I probably should have looked this up, but I'd like to know what those devices looked like because, I mean, this is a while ago and we're just now getting to the point where, you know, small, very, very tiny devices that could fit inside a phone, which is generally what you think of when you think of a, a phone bug. Yeah, uh, would would have been there. So I would like to know the actual mechanisms by which they did essentially wiretap phones. Uh, just out of curiosity, because it would definitely be outdated and obvious to anyone now, probably. Yeah, I'm just picturing like maybe they screwed off the receiver. You remember how the old phones were where you can uh -huh. remove that component 
but yeah, it's a good question. I see. I think that's what they show in the movies, but I don't know how realistic that is. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, anyway, they got all these listening devices installed and then everybody was like, oh, well, actually, some of these things need to be repaired already. So I guess we should go ahead and do another burglary <laughs> to get get that taken care of. Yeah. So shortly after midnight on June the 17th of 1972, there's a security guard at the Watergate complex. Uh, his name's Frank Wills. He notices that tape covering the latches on some of the doors in the complex that led from the underground parking garage to the offices that this tape was there. So he's like, hey, that doesn't belong there. I'm going to remove the tape. No big deal, right? What what boggles my mind is that, you know, the official testimony is that he didn't think anything about it or he didn't think to report it or it wasn't like a big deal. Like, okay, buddy, you're like the security guard and somebody obviously made these doors in such a way that they would stay open. And you're like, oh, okay, it must have been a mistake, I guess. I don't know. That's I don't know. Yeah. So about an hour later, he's like, oh, somebody retaped the locks. So he's like, "Okay." This time I'm going to do the right thing. (laughs) He calls the police and five men were found inside the DNC office and they were arrested. Yeah. And shortly thereafter, they get indicted by the grand jury and, uh, you know, conspiracy, burglary, violation of federal wiretapping laws, all that fun stuff that's going to land you a lot of prison time. But uh, then they were tried by a jury and were convicted. January 30th of 1973. So not even six months after everything went down. Yeah. So Nixon is like, uh, yeah, right. This, this doesn't sound right. None of, none of my people would ever be involved in, in this break in. And, um, the prosecutor, James Neal, he was pretty sure that Nixon didn't know anything about the break ins. And, um, on June 23rd, There was a taped conversation between the president and his chief of staff where Nixon was like, who was the asshole who ordered it? And um, Nixon was like exonerated, right? Yeah. So a few days later, Ron Ziegler, who is the press secretary for Nixon, comes out and says, this is a third rate burglary attempt. And, you know, what's inferred by that is basically if we had done it, it it would have been a better job than this. We wouldn't have gotten caught. Um, but that's not what he actually says. Uh, Nixon says a little while later that I can categorically say that no one in the White House staff, no one in this administration presently employed was involved in this very bizarre incident. And, uh, you know, it kind of trickled away for a little while. There's some things that are still popping up here and there, but people kind of forget until some more stuff happens. Yeah. So follow the money, right? Uh Uh-huh. And in June of 72, the press begins to report that one of the Watergate burglars was a Republican Party security aide. And that was former Attorney General John Mitchell. And he was the head of Nixon's reelection campaign. And he's like, I don't know anything about this. I don't know any of these burglars or anything. So leave me alone. A bigger issue comes into play on August 1st, which is, you know, just about a month and a half after that, when a cashier's check that was 
made out for $25,000 and also earmarked for the Nixon campaign gets found in the bank account of one of these Watergate burglars. So it actually comes to light that the, the whole team of these five guys has thousands of dollars more and uh, it all came from places where they didn't know uh, they couldn't track it or they did track it to places that shouldn't have come from. And so, you know, this, uh, this doesn't really help the president out, President Nixon out at the time. Yeah. So there's all kinds of money going back and forth through different accounts. And in September, the press reports that John Mitchell, while he was the attorney general, controlled a secret Republican fund used to finance intelligence gathering against the Democrats. And in October, the FBI reported that the Watergate break-in was part of a massive campaign of political spying and sabotage on behalf of the Nixon re-election committee. And in spite of all of this, Nixon's campaign was never in jeopardy. I mean, the, the president gets elected in November and it's a landslide. Yeah. Like one of the biggest landslides we've ever seen as well. So there's a lot of stuff that's crazy happening during this time. Um, we didn't know then. We still don't know now how much Nixon actually knew about anything or continued to know about anything or if he was filled in on more stuff and still didn't talk about it. A lot of people think he probably knew everything and other people say he was too smart to have been directly involved, but probably knew something was happening. At any rate, uh, there's some people in his administration that either volunteer to resign and he just allows them to do so. And then there are some people who he asked to resign that they do. And uh, multiple of those individuals were tried and convicted later on. And, uh, you know, he asked for some of them to for things to, to go easy on them. And uh, that doesn't help his case out much either. We're going to go through 1973 quickly here. And there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. So remember, November 1972, Nixon wins by a landslide. By February, the Senate votes 77 to zero to approve a committee to investigate Watergate. To get 77 members uh, of the Senate to agree to do anything is pretty impressive and kind of damning evidence in, in and of itself. So yeah, good luck, President Nixon. Yeah, it's pretty crazy too, because the American public is keenly aware of what's going on. It's said that an estimated 85% of Americans with television sets tune in to at least one portion of the hearings that took place. Which that's a big thing too, right, Jason? I mean, like we've got the media super involved in this and we're essentially the, the modern day term would be live streaming it. You know, they're casting it out on the, on the television, but we're going to call it live streaming it to the nation. They're able to watch things as they go down directly. And, you know, pr before this, this wasn't really an option. You kind of, you could catch things on TV occasionally, but you pretty much had to wait for the paper the next day. Right. And one, there's a lot of these going on, right? And the, and the public is very aware of what's happening, but really illustrative of, of this instant knowledge is in July, in front of a live televised audience, 
Fred Thompson, who is the chief minority counsel, asks a representative of the administration, was the president aware of the installation of any listening devices in the Oval Office of the president? And what ends up happening is, well, Nixon had a bunch of tapes and Nixon says, I'm not going to release them because I'm the chief executive and I've got executive privilege and you need to drop your subpoena. And no, it doesn't get dropped. And these tapes really come back to bite the president. Okay, so the Nixon administration at this point, you know, they're deciding what do we release because the president isn't real keen on just saying, sure, have all of this that you would like, nor would anyone else in his administration want to do that. But basically, they uh, put out some transcripts and decided that that would be the best way to go because they could make sure that they held things that were appropriate and, you know, not incredibly bad evidence against the president and the administration. Uh, There were instances where, you know, things like expletives were removed and new words were put in their place or nothing was put in their place, which people kind of thought was odd that there'd be such um, such discussions that would happen that they would have to replace that much language in them. Yeah, there's all kinds of evidence and especially now with more modern technology um, that really hurts <laughs> the administration's case in any of this where uh, different segments of the tapes had been erased at least five places, but as many as nine, probably incriminating information in those erased segments. But what ends up happening is on February the 6th, 1974, the House passes a resolution to investigate the impeachment. The House Judiciary Committee gets authority from the House of Representatives to investigate impeachment of the president. So August 5th, 1974 rolls around. There's this tape that's previously unknown, and it's from back in June of 1972, and it's right after the break-in happens. And... It pretty much just documents out the initial stages of the cover-up. And it basically shows that the president and multiple other members of the investigation meet up in the Oval Office and have a plan formulated to block investigations that were going to happen. Needless to say, if you are blocking an investigation, it's probably because you have something you don't want to be investigated, as would prove to be the case. Right. Yeah. What it comes down to is the president, well, he lies to the nation and he's lying to people who are in his administration who are trying to do the right thing. And well, that's not cool. And by the time August 7th, 1974 rolls around, Uh, Barry Goldwater and Hugh Scott, their senators, and John Jacob Rhodes, um, who's in the Congress, they meet with Nixon and they're like, there is no way, Mr. Nixon, that you are going to survive an impeachment trial. Yeah. So President Nixon decides he's going to resign and he gives a 
nationally televised address. Of course, it would be nationally televised. It would only make sense from the Oval Office and um, gives a pretty moving speech. But basically, in in the kind of just de- denies any wrongdoing at all and says, I'm going to resign tomorrow. See ya. So Gerald Ford becomes the president. And about a month later, he pardons Nixon. So it really comes in to play with the theme of our podcast being election college is that, well, 1976 rolls around, Ford is up for re-election, and he loses to Jimmy Carter. Probably a big thing that resulted in his defeat was the fact that he pardons Nixon, which, Ben, makes me think about Richard Nixon's legacy. Because Nixon did a lot of great things as president. You know, it's interesting, Ben, talking about legacy, because how would Nixon be remembered? Would he be remembered as the guy who had to resign in disgrace? Or would he be remembered for some of the good things he did during his administration? He essentially had to flee the scene there for a couple of years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of legacy, I know he did a lot of great things and had a lot of contributions after his presidency as well. I know he consulted with presidents that came after him, but, you know, me being born in the late 80s and uh, having really no recollection of Nixon in in any capacity other than my history books and, and things I've read and been interested in. When I think of Nixon, the only thing I think of is the fact that scandal circles his name. You know, I don't I don't really know or have any uh, personal connection with the fact that he may have been a great politician, a great man of the people. Um, I know those things to be said, but for me, his legacy is he screwed up. Yeah, but a lot of people and just evidence of the fact that he was very instrumental in speaking to the Soviet Union. He had several meetings with um, Soviet leaders. He went to China, which had been closed off to the rest of the world up until that point. And even after he had resigned, he became a one of the chief proponents for Ronald Reagan in 1980 and even met with president Bill Clinton uh, on occasion and gave him advice. And he was a member of that fraternity that, that very small group of people who had actually ascended to the presidency and was viewed as an elder statesman and somebody who was respected. And keep in mind, Nixon was, big before he won the presidency in 1968. He almost defeated John F. Kennedy back in the early 60s. So uh, this is somebody who really played a big role in the administration of our nation ever since the Eisenhower years. Yeah. So that just goes to show based on what you know of someone may not be the full story. Uh, There could be plenty more to hear. And just because someone has some negativity to their name doesn't mean they 
didn't have a lot of positivity to their name as well. So remember that when you're meeting new people or hearing about people, um, there's probably more to the story about that person or those people than you will ever know. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, something he was quoted as saying, um, somebody had approached him and uh, said, you know, most Americans don't really feel like they know you. And he said, quote, yeah, it's true. And it's not necessarily for them to know <laughs> how many, <laughs> how many people in this age of social media and just this desire to be celebrity and, and to be known, um, are like Richard Nixon. Not, it's not something I, I see out there. Yeah. All right. That's our episode about Watergate and Nixon and almost impeachment processes. The, uh, Interesting thing to me, Jason, is I don't really know what happens or what happened in this specific instance after Nixon resigned. Are the impeachment trials dropped? Are there no further criminal investigations happening against him? How does that work? Yeah, I think a lot had been taken care of when Ford gave Nixon the pardon. There were some other convictions. Right. Uh, but, but as far as him, obviously, yeah, as far as Nixon goes, he was completely pardoned and the legal system um, or the justice system could not touch him. Yeah. They just kind of have to quit at that point. Mm -hmm. Crazy. Well, hey, we hope you don't quit giving us great reviews. See how I did that. That was really, really bad. But go ahead and keep <laughs> giving us great reviews. We really appreciate when we see them come through. We get alerted in our email and also are able to see them on iTunes and it makes our day. So take the 90 seconds, head over to iTunes, leave us a star rating and review. I promise there are people who have listened to the show specifically because of the almost 80 star ratings and reviews we have had gotten so far and them being mostly positive. And I can almost predict and, well, dive into the psyche of most of you that you do some shopping on Amazon. And one way you can really help us out, help support the show monetarily is by clicking on our Amazon affiliate link. And you can do so by going to electioncollege.com slash Amazon. It will take you to Amazon as if nothing was different. And... And the magical powers of the internet, we will get a certain percentage of each sale that is made when you use that link. So go to electioncollege.com slash Amazon. We will thank you for it. And um, yeah, it helps us keep this podcast going. You'll thank yourself. As a matter of fact, I think you will. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. And we will see you next time for another episode of Election College. We'll see you then. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online. Schedule package pickups through the dashboard and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.